welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast. This episode, Upton Bell shares 1960s Baltimore Colts NFL draft stories. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast. I am author and oral historian Jackson Michael. The Baltimore Colts made two NFL championship games in the 1960s. The first was in 1964. They were heavy favorites and lost at Cleveland to the Browns. The 1968 NFL championship game was a rematch between the Colts and Browns in Cleveland. This time, the Colts won handily 34 to nothing. That Colts team later lost Super Bowl III to the New York Jets. In 1970, the Colts made the Super Bowl again, this time as AFC champions. The Colts won Super Bowl V, 16-13 over the Dallas Cowboys. A game-winning field goal by Jim O'Brien won that game. The field goal came after an interception by star linebacker Mike Curtis. One common thread that each of those Colts teams had was that Upton Bell was in the scouting department. He was director of player personnel when they won the 1968 NFL Championship and Super Bowl V. He drafted both Mike Curtis and Jim O'Brien, as well as some other star players that we'll discuss with him in this episode. Upton will also share about his time as an NFL babysitter during the AFL-NFL war. Babysitters were generally NFL scouts who tried to keep college players away from AFL scouts. Both leagues fought hard to keep their draft choices from signing with the other league, and a lot of crazy things happened as a result. Upton is going to share some firsthand experiences about those times with us here in a moment. Upton will also appear on the History Channel this Wednesday, April 26, 2023, telling different stories about the NFL draft. The Colts head coach during most of Upton Bell's time with the team was Don Shula. Yes, that Don Shula. Before Coach Shula won two Super Bowls with the Dolphins, he was head coach of the Colts, including during the 1964 NFL Championship game and in Super Bowl three. One of his assistant coaches at the time was Chuck Knoll. Yes, that Chuck Knoll, head coach of the Steelers dynasty of the 1970s. Upton is going to dig deep into conversations he had with Don Shula about draft choices. He will also tell us the story of why the Colts drafted Bubba Smith as the first overall choice of the 1967 NFL draft. These are great stories that you'll hear nowhere else, please remember to visit thegamebeforethemoney.com and please consider making a donation. The Game Before the Money is a nonprofit organization 
And here are some 1960s Colts NFL draft stories from Colts Director of Player Personnel, Upton Bell. You came into uh, the Colts Scouting Department after working in the ticket office, and that was in the early 60s when the AFL and NFL were battling for draft picks. What was that like? Well, first of all, working in the ticket office where the ticket manager stole $100,000 the year before, and it was like moving from, from the fire into the nether fire, which was the NFL draft at that time. And by the way, Michael, how ironic that the son of the commissioner, Bert Bell, who founded the NFL draft, would by either accident or design end up being a scout working in the draft that he invented. I, I thought, what an irony it was. But anyway, in 1963, I was still part-time, and the general manager, Don Kellett, called me, and actually my brother, Bert, and said, we're sending you to Atlanta to be part of the NFL babysitter plan. I said, there are no babies. <laughs> I said, what is this? He said, you're to go fly into Atlanta, you're to get a hotel room, which we've arranged, big hotel room with a suite, and you're to contact the Georgia Tech players who we think will be going high in the draft. And that was Billy Martin, the tight end, who eventually was taken in the first round by the Bears, Billy Lothridge, who was signed as a free agent by the Cowboys, and Ted Davis, who was uh, a I won't say he was an all-American linebacker, but he was one of the best to be in the draft. And he had been uh, sat down by Bobby Dodd, the head coach, uh, with a few games left in the season because he kicked the player in the head. Of course, today, he probably would be all pro. But anyway, that was my assignment, my brother and myself. And we were to go to a game on Saturday, the final game of the season, was Georgia versus Georgia Tech. Now, Georgia also had some players that could be drafted high. And so, therefore, we went to that game, but the idea is right after the game, which was played, I believe, in Athens, we were to corral the three players, Martin Lothridge and Ted Davis, and get them to come back to the hotel. Now, again, remember, if you're saying the players come with plenty to, plenty to eat, stop by and see us in the hospitality suite and, and uh, of course, drinks. And when you're that age and you're a kid, you'll say, all right, we'll stop by, whatever it is. Now, the thing that we were told was that you basically had to keep them occupied between Saturday and the draft, which I believe that, that year was on a Tuesday. And I'm saying, how the hell are we going to do this? <laughs> you know, they're going to end up bringing their girlfriends up here. You know, is this going to be a boudoir or whatever it is? I, I, I didn't know. One thing I did know is I called downstairs and I ordered a case of beer. And then I said, bring ice with it. So we filled the bathtub up. Slapping. <laughs> we filled the bathtub up with beer and ice for these guys. <laughs> in the meantime, we were given a number in New York. I mean, this was true, the man from uncle type of stuff. Uh, we were given a, a thing in New York where there, it was like babysitter central. 
and Pete Rozelle had arranged with, I think his name was Jack Landry, the president of Marlboro Cigarettes, to set up this network, this babysit network, all around the NFL. The interesting thing in Boston was Ed King, who eventually went on to be the governor of Massachusetts and was the next player for the Baltimore Colts, was one of the babysitters here. This was set up to play off AFL, who were themselves hiding out plays. As we saw with Otis Taylor, of course, he was heading in a motel, and then Kansas City came in and took him out the back window and flew him to Kansas City. You can't believe the stories. Harry Shue of, of the Memphis State, who was considered the top offensive lineman uh, between the 49ers and I believe, yes, the Raiders, had made him their number one. And Ron Wolf, who was a friend of mine who was working for Oakland at the time, was to beat him in Vegas and keep him occupied. Then the next thing he knows, he gets a call from Al Davis and they fly him out of there because the NFL was right on his heels, and they flew him to Hawaii to hide him out. So <laughs> uh, people will say, we can't believe this, but this is what it was. So anyway, over three days, they come in, they come out, they have some beers, uh, we talk to them, uh, try to sell them on how important the NFL was. In the meantime, who flies in? to Atlanta, but Don Klosterman, who at that time I think was the general manager with the Chargers, or I know he ended up at Houston as their general manager, and ironically, Michael, he ends up being the Colts general manager for the one year I was there before I went to, to the Patriots. He was calling them and saying, come on over here, I'll, I'll get you hot baths and, and a steam and some drinks. <laughs> so, <laughs> And, and while they were, uh, Billy Lothridge, Billy Martin, and Ted Davis, while they were in my suite drinking my beers, <laughs> they were also getting calls to the room from Klosterman from a phone booth across the street. Does this sound like the FBI in Washington? <laughs> so, blurry-eyed and, and with very little sleep, we finally make it to Tuesday. And so I'm reporting back not only to NFL Central Headquarters, Babysitter Headquarters, but also talking back and forth to Shula. And I said, have you given any thought to Ted Davis? I said, I've seen him play during the season. I said, I know he kicked somebody in the head. I said, but I think he's pretty good. And I kind of liked him. And Shula said, well, he said, well, we're not taking him in the first couple of rounds, he said. Uh, and he said, do you think you can sign him? I said, I don't know. Let me let me talk to him. So finally, I convinced them. I don't know how, but I convinced them. I said, we need linebackers, Don Shinnick and other people, Bill Pellington are getting old. And I said, I think this guy could be pretty good. So anyway, without telling me, they sure called and said, all right, kid. We've drafted them. Now you better sign them. <laughs> so to make a long story short, I said, you know, Ted, we can do this. We can do that. He said, well, and they all tell you this. Well, I've been offered more money by the AFL. I don't know. You know, they're play acting and pretending themselves. That was the day before real agents. 
And so I said, what will it take? Are you ready for this, Michael? What will it take to get you signed? I'm willing to give you a bonus. Think about this, which was big then. I think it was 12000 and sign your contract for 14, 14 and 16, something like that. And he said, oh, well, let me, let me think about it. He said, um, I wouldn't mind getting my nails done. <laughs> I, I said, what? He said, I, uh, I'll do it for the bonus money and the contract, but I need a pedicure. I'm saying, oh, my God, nobody will believe this. <laughs> so I said, and pedicures, then, you know, he, he wasn't talking about a cheap one. We're talking about, like, $100. And, and I said, okay, I'm calling your bluff. Here's the contract. I'll write out a check, and I'll pay for the pedicure. And he went down at the pedicure. He, Kept his word, signed the contract. So you're talking the only scout that ever got a player to sign for a pedicure. <laughs> oh, wow. That is incredible. Wow. And, 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 and I got Billy Martin to sign with the Bears. He was taken number one as their tight end. They were looking for somebody to succeed Ditka. And Martin never turned. He, it was a good player, but it never turned out to be great. And Dallas signed so I got my job done and I think that helped me somewhat when I went back somewhat triumphant I mean I think John Stedman of the News American wrote a story about it how Upton Bell got his linebacker for a pedicure and, <laughs> and that you couldn't believe besides the money being thrown around but I also think that led eventually in 66 to the merger. The NFL owners did not want any longer to bid against the other league, uh, whether they thought they were good enough or not. And then, of course, Al Davis, they brought him in as a temporary commissioner, and he started signing all the quarterbacks. And I knew, I said, this is over. These guys don't want to pay the money. But that is the story. And I'm sticking to it, as Alec Hawkins said, Bell and the pedicure. <laughs> now um you mentioned that that billy martin uh the tight end and and not the billy martin who uh played for right. the yankees and was a later manager for the yankees a different billy martin um you mentioned that that he was with you and signed with the bears did you have power then did, did the bears send you a contract for him were, were you working for the bears in that regard too or did the bears negotiate I was, no, I, I actually I was working for the league. So so basically, I could sign them to a contract, but I put him on the phone with the Bears, and the Bears negotiated, and, and he agreed. And, and they all kept their word, whether I signed them or not, that they were going to sign. They kept their word once they got the money they wanted. Uh, that... That was it. And I believe I did have a con I had contracts with me to sign anybody. Okay, that's really interesting. Be, that, 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 you know, you had contracts the players would sign with other teams. That I think that's kind of something that's, that's kind of like not very well known about that, that babysitter well, era. Yeah, nobody knows these stories. There should be a book just on those three or four years 
and and the things that went on, you, you would think we're talking about espionage here. And the money that was being thrown around the cash, you'll never know how much real cash was involved because I, I don't believe that they would write out a check. They would give you cash uh, on, on some of the players. I didn't do it. But that's that's the way it went. I mean, if if you think that this low-level guy from here is giving away Pentagon secrets, think about what's going on then. It was truly the Wild West. This is just your first, you know, we, we just kind of kind of talked about your first year in the uh, Colts scouting department. And that, that's, right. it's pretty amazing all itself. Now, now you move into 1964 and you're still, um, you're still and one I, of the scouts. What, what was that draft? Well, I, I, I had now graduated the first assistant to Keith Molesworth. I mean, we didn't have a big scouting department. In those days, uh, also the early 60s, the only thing you really knew was you had what they called paid scouts at each college. So if I was going to Arizona State or Arizona, even though I might or might not know the head coach, we had a paid scout that I could go to. We'd send them like $100 or $200 to write reports. They had to write them secretly because the coach knew that they were dealing with the pros this way, they'd have been fired. In the next part of the interview, we're going to discuss the 1965 NFL draft, which was actually held during the 1964 NFL season. It was held on Saturday, November 28th, 1964. Once the AFL started, the NFL started holding their draft earlier and earlier to try to beat the other league in signing players. The AFL held its 1965 draft on the same day, November 28th, 1964. So you have both leagues holding their draft and then playing games the next day. How crazy is that? Okay, if you're a regular listener of this podcast, you might guess what I was thinking here. How did they figure out the draft order while the season was still being played out? I later texted Upton that question, and he said he thought it was based on the current records at the time during the season, but asked me to double-check that. A little bit of research indeed proved Upton's memory correct. The New York Times reported on the day of the draft that the Giants own the first overall pick of the NFL draft because they currently had the worst record in the NFL. Going into that 1965 NFL draft held in November of 1964, Keith Molesworth was director of personnel for the Colts and Upton was listed as assistant director of personnel in the team's media guide. Upton is going to tell us what happened during that 1965 Colts draft that set his career on a different course. Remember that Upton was quite young at the time, still in his 20s, and even younger than some of the players on the Colts roster. We're now going to 1964, my second year in the department. And uh, we had clinched 
the championship early or clinch our division to win it. Uh, and we're going to go against the Browns. But we're finishing up the season against the Rams, as we always did, and then the San Francisco 49ers. So I was to beat the team. Uh, I and Molesworth in Los Angeles, we fly to San Francisco. And then, of course, we would have the draft during the season at that time because of all of the things going back and forth between ourselves and the AFL. So it, the draft was like the end of November. At a hotel in San Francisco, we brought all the records with us, all the scouting reports, everything. And the name of the hotel was called the Jack Tar in San Francisco. That's where the team always stayed. So Molesworth and I get there, and we have a big, big uh, draft room. Uh, the coaches are having their practice. We're getting ready for the 49ers. And basically, we brought all the books, the position books with all the reports. We're now in the scouting combine called SIPO, and we're preparing everything. And I've seen a lot of the top players. This is the draft that made me or gave me the opportunity. So there the draft comes. And sure, the coaches are in there, they're reading through the books, and the head guy, Keith Molesworth, has a heart attack. Now, you tell me the last time somebody has a heart attack, who's running the draft? He had a heart attack, and they took him out. And everybody's looking around saying, well, now what happens? So Shula comes over to me and says, okay, kid, it's your show. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> I don't know whether you can use that language, but, but that's what he said. I'm thinking to myself, here I'm really essentially a 25-year-old kid. I mean, in those days, even maybe to today, you don't get a head job in anything, particularly personnel, until you're 50, if you're lucky. And so here was my draft. Mike Curtis, number one, who belongs to the Hall of Fame. Ralph Neely, number two, who belongs in the Hall of Fame. In Neely's case, uh, Neely told us that he'd love to play for the Colts, but he wanted to play in Texas. So we had to trade his rights to the Cowboys, unfortunately, or he would have been a Colt also. And I also said to Shula, I said, there's a linebacker I love. The two linebackers I like, the one I love, and his name is Al Atkinson from Villanova. And Shula said, Villanova, they're playing big time again. I said, yeah. So my first four of the six picks were Mike Curtis, I think Hall of Fame. Ralph Daly, I think Hall of Fame. Al Atkinson, who ironically ended up siding with the Jets and played against us in the 68 Super Bowl that we lost. And the other guy who I think is a coach that belongs to the Hall of Fame, Marty Schottenheimer. They were my first four out of, I think, six picks. Wow, that is incredible. And then what happens? The following spring, I'm in Texas, scouting all the different colleges in Texas, your, your home state. And Paco Kilroy calls me on a Sunday morning, and he said, I just want to let you know, he said that your, your head guy, Keith Molesworth had a heart attack and died. I said, you've got to be kidding. And so I called Baltimore. 
talk to Shula. And he said, well, you can come back for the funeral. And he said, uh, just take a plane and come back again. And I said to myself, I didn't say to Shula, if I come to Baltimore and go back out again, I'll never get this job. So I drove all the way back from Texas to Baltimore in less than 24 hours. Only slept an hour at a motel. I said, wake me up in an hour and, and continue to drive all the way to Baltimore. I got there, went to the funeral. Shul and I had conversations that week, and I said to him, look, I know you're going to pick one of your friends. One was Bob Nussbaumer, who was the personnel director with the Lions when Shula was there. I said, but I want this job, and I'm going to tell you I'm going to do everything to get it. Shula kind of, I think, kind of respected the idea that somebody would tell him that. And also the idea that maybe I should consider them. Anyway, in the end, I wrote the owner, Carol Rosenblum, a letter and said, you're one of seven children. Your father put you in charge as the youngest. I said, I'm the youngest. All I'm asking for is a chance. And a week later, I got the job. Wow. So you're the head. That, that, that yep. was your personnel director then. I think I was the youngest master as I think I was the youngest general manager in NFL history at the time. Yeah. Wow, that is that is incredible. But again, you know, I'm wondering, because, you know, people forget Don Shula's a pretty young guy at that time, yeah, too. He, yeah, he was just 33. And I think that what helped was that if it was a much older coach, I don't think I had a chance, no matter how good I was. But because Shula had to prove himself, it was his second year, and of course, too bad we lost shut up by the Browns when we were heavy favorites to win. Uh, but he was coming into his own. He had to prove himself. He had, you know, he and United never really got along. But I think when he looked at me, if he had been 50 or so, been around for a while, I wouldn't have gotten the job. But the idea that I could talk to a young guy, being a young guy, I think also really helped. He also, you had to prove with him. You proved with him, even if you didn't get along with him. And this is the thing I loved about Shaw, in spite of what people say about him today. If you proved you could do the job, you got it. And that's, that's what happened in the end. But if it wasn't for that draft and Molesworth having a heart attack, I'd never, I'd never be talking about it today. It wouldn't happen. Before the 1967 NFL Draft, the Colts traded quarterback Gary Quazzo to the newly founded New Orleans Saints for the Saints' first-round draft pick. That gave the Colts the first overall pick in the 1967 NFL Draft, and Upton tells the story of the Colts picking Michigan State defensive end Bubba Smith. Well, number one, and it was a good thing he could do with dealing with Shula. Number one, when he got he got the deal, he talked Tom Fears, stupidly Fears, taking Gary Quazzo, but, you know, we need the quarterback. Giving us the number one. I said to Shula, boy, you have just hijacked somebody to get Fears to agree to it. Yeah, Fears uh, being the New Orleans head coach at the yeah, time. They, they just, yeah, they were the expansion team that had come in, and 
So basically, what he wanted to do was I had seen that year probably the most controversial college game in college history. Notre Dame and Michigan State, the 10-10 tie one for the Gipper game. I think there were something like six or seven first-round choices between the, the two teams. I don't think you'll ever see that again. And, and I, so I was going to watch Notre Dame, and of course, they had so many people, including Alan Page, Terry Hanratty was, was the quarterback, Jim Seymour was the wide receiver, but they had players up and down the roster. With the case of Michigan State, uh, you had Bubba Smith, first round, George Webster, first round, Clinton Jones, first round, and Gene Washington, first round. And so after the season over, Shula said, we've got the pick. He had fallen in love with Bubba because at, at the Senior Bowl, he just crushed people. And I, I always went to the Senior Bowl, spent the week there. And Shula might have been there that week, too. But when he saw Bubba on film, just crushing people, I could tell right away, I said, oh, my God, I'm in trouble. I, and, and the reason I said I was in trouble is I always thought Bubba was a, a player that had the greatest ability, but he would take plays off. I thought he was lazy. I thought he was a bullshitter, too. What a combination, huh? <laughs> so, but when you look at six seven two ninety five, with quickness and the ability to rush the passer, I can understand. So anyway, Shula said, "I'll let you and I go to Michigan State. I'll call Duffy's already. We'll set up a meeting. Each one will come by the motel, and then we'll take him to dinner that night." So I said to him on the way down, "The best of these four is George Webster." I said, "He's a killer. He plays every play." He's among the best linebackers I've ever seen in college. I said, but I want to warn you, he doesn't say much. I said, don't take it as him being shy. He just doesn't say much. So we end up flying into East Lansing, and we interview each one of them. And Bubba came in, and Bubba's a guy that you would say, he, he could play Clark Cable's role in Gone with the Wind. Bubba was a born entertainer. Uh, but I, again, I was always suspicious. So we talked to Bubba. Webster came in, talked to him. But Webster didn't have much to say. And, and Shul was a very outgoing guy. And I think he still had his mind those, the film of watching him just destroy people who would be future pros. So... We then went to dinner that night, and all four came there. Think about it. You had dinner with four number one draft choices, and the, the one kid they brought with them was Jess Phillips, who was taken high by Cincinnati in the draft the following year. He was only a junior. So afterwards, and then the meetings before the draft, I could tell. So I said to Shula, I said, in the end, you will make the choice. I said, I'm just telling you, I think Webster is a once-in-a-lifetime player. I think Bubba could be, but basically, he's lazy, and he is going to con you to death. And, but I said, also, once it's announced, I will never say a word. I said, I'm not one of these people that second-guesses the coach. Well, I, I wouldn't do it anyway. And so, it's ironic that when 
the choice was announced, Shula said, come on, Kay, I want you to come out here. Uh, I want you to announce it, which was very generous. I think coaches don't care about personnel directors. I don't think. Maybe some of them do. But anyway, but I also thought, he, because they've gotten around to some of the writers in Baltimore that basically, I, I like Webster better than Bubba. And so, basically, I think she also wanted me out there to kind of reinforce that this pick was the right pick. So I just announced it, didn't say one way or another, and, and that was it. And in the end, sorrowfully, I was right because Bubba never hit his potential. In fact, in the 68 Super Bowl, they turned him around like a top. And even Shula said to me, even at that training camp, you know, something like, Uppy, you're right, but we'll get him straightened out. He even brought Gino Marchetti back to training camp, which Gino very rarely ever did, to work with Bubba. And Gino was a man of few words, and I, I could kind of tell that he, he thought the guy had great ability, but he could see what I saw. And Shula saw what I saw, too. So the end of the story is, your initial impressions about somebody are usually true. Now, you've also shared with me um, trying to sign him was was <laughs> interesting as well, because, uh, you know, even though most players didn't have agents at the time, Bubba Smith apparently took the agent idea to another level. I got this call on successive days to three different agents. <laughs> and once, Joe Tubiello, this, uh, who I liked, I said, Joe, I hope you didn't give him any money. He said, I did. And I said, how much? And I, I, I think either he or one of the other agents gave him like $10,000. Now think about this. This is 1967. And so... Then another agent calls me and said, listen, I have the exclusive rights to Bubba. I said, you and 500 other people have the exclusive rights to Bubba. And I'm going to show I said, you know what? Our problems have started. And I said, I don't care. Whichever one wins the battle gets it. But I think Bubba extracted out of every one of a certain amount of money. Okay. Just going to take a moment here to interject about Bubba Smith and George Webster because a lot of us remember Bubba Smith as being a very good player. Plus, Bubba Smith was well known for his work as an actor, probably most famously in light beer commercials and in the movie Police Academy. I'm personally a big fan of Bubba Smith as I'm sure many of you are too. George Webster isn't remembered that well. So you might be wondering why George Webster might have been considered a better pick than Bubba Smith. The truth is that for three years, George Webster was one of the most dominant defensive players in pro football. In 1968, the Oilers press guide said that, quote, Webster was an all-time great at Michigan State and destined to be an all-time great in pro ball, unquote. In 1970, the Oilers press guide said, quote, Webster is one of those rare athletes who comes along every few years and in his three campaigns has already established himself 
as the finest outside linebacker in pro football, unquote. So, why isn't George Webster very well remembered? Well, unfortunately for George Webster and pro football fans alike, Webster suffered a harrowing knee injury in 1970 and never returned to form. But for three years, George Webster was recognized as one of the best players in football and destined to be an all-time great. Bubba Smith, again, like most of you out there, I love Bubba Smith. But even though George Webster's career was derailed, Webster wound up with more All-Pro and Pro Bowl nominations than Bubba Smith did. Still, Bubba Smith was nowhere near a bust, and he was a beloved player in Baltimore. All right, back to Upton Bell now. Upton is going to remember scouting some other players that he drafted and his experience as general manager of the Patriots. Yeah, then you had uh, you had two more uh, drafts with the Colts. One, one player in particular, well, there are a couple of players in particular that I think we should talk about. One who you drafted that you wanted to talk about is Preston Pearson. Unbelievably abuse that some guy, some writer, put on me because I drafted him. Since I played basketball in college, I always felt like Gil Brandt that there's got to be players out there that particularly can play defensive back at the time. We're looking at it. And I remember going to a practice at Illinois, basketball practice, because I always was looking for basketball players. And not only that, I loved the college game. I liked it even better than the pro game. And I was watching Preston Pearson, who was very well muscled. And the one thing I always tried to judge a player was the quickness of his feet. You might not be able to run a fast 40, but if your feet were really quick, especially for a defensive back and an offensive lineman, Offensive line have to pass protect, have to have really good footwork. They don't have to be as big as now today. It's a lot different. Uh, but I always look at a person's feet because in playing basketball and studying it, you could be slow running down the court. But if you had an initial really quick move, you were gone. And watching him, he was well muscled. He was like 6'2". And watching him at practice, he wasn't a particularly good shooter. But he was a good defender, and I said, you know what? When it comes to, like, the 14th or 15th round, in those days I think it went 17, 18 rounds, I said, I'm going to take this guy. Here it comes up. I, I think Michael is either 15, 16th round. Uh, we announced the Colts take Preston Pierce. I'm telling Shul all about him. Shul was always open to it, even if he was critical. So we took him. And this writer, I think from Milwaukee, I'm not sure, wrote a scathing article, called me, why would you take somebody like that? It's a waste of draft choice. How dumb can you be? And I actually told him to go screw himself. And I think he wrote that too. <laughs> so, so what is the bottom line? He comes, I talked to Chuck Noll before I took him. I said, Chuck, I said, you, you, know, you know what to do with people like this, no experience. But I said, he really has that quickness of feet. And I said, Take a look at him as a defensive back, maybe a wide receiver on the other side. So he said, fine. And he came to training camp, and we kept him. He could either play running back or defensive corner. I always thought he would have been a really good one. 
The name of the player was Preston Pearson, and he's the only guy, I believe, you're the historian, the only guy to play in four different Super Bowls with three different teams. And that, you, you know, a lot of people uh, a lot of people talk about scouting, and they think, you know, it's maybe something that anybody could do or anything, but it's, it's really a lot more than that. You have to have a, a certain kind of skill set and a certain, certain eye for talent. I consider the top scouts in history the equal of the top coaches. Because, again, the coach doesn't win without the talent. And I was lucky enough, when we finally won the Super Bowl in 1970, half the team were drafted by me. I'm not saying that egotistically. I didn't write it. Ernie, of course, he wrote it, and so did Tony Raiders. Some of those draft picks, you know, included Mike Curtis, who made the big play um, at the end of Super Bowl V. Uh-huh. And Jim O'Brien. Everybody said with Jim O'Brien. Now, think about this the time. He's a long haired hippie, and he has ulcers. One coach said, He has ulcers. Why the hell are we drafting this guy? He said, Because if you look at him as a kicker, I said, Yeah, he's kind of crazy. I said, But as a kicker, he's always been good in the big moments. So when's the big moment come up? Curtis, Curtis makes the interception on the tip. And O'Brien, and I'm sure people on the bench were saying, oh, my God, this 50 is going in that can either win or lose a championship for us, a Super Bowl. He goes in and makes the winning kick. To be a head scout, a personnel director, you have to be a little bit strange. You have to look at the world in a completely different way. You have to look at players and situations that don't make sense in the real world and see something that you think that other people don't see. If you don't have that type of attitude and that type of drive, you're not going to make it at all. And uh, one other guy I wanted to talk to you about that that you drafted, uh, who's a Hall of Famer, is is Ted Hendricks. What was the story behind him? Best outside linebacker I've ever seen. The best. That was another case. I'd seen him many times in his senior year. He was a stand-up defensive end at like 6'7". He only weighed 200 pounds. And I remember showing again to Bill Lawrence who was a terrific coach, defensive line coach, and to show, and, and again, you got to convince people. And, and I remember Shula saying to me, Upton, he's terrific. He's 6'7", 195 pounds. Where the hell is he going to play? He's a stand-up defensive end. I said, linebacker. And the people looked at me and said, he's a stand-up defensive end. Those guys don't make it. said, he's never played linebacker. I said, he's one of the smartest players I've ever seen. And so instead of taking him on the first round, he said, okay, we'll take him on the second round. And by the way, when he came in for you know, the rookie camp, and he was late coming in that night from Miami, and I could tell he had been drinking, not heavily, but he was drinking. I said, Ted, I'm, I'm sorry, but everybody, even though it's midnight, has to take an IQ test, which was the Wonderlick test. 
He said, okay, give it to me. He finished it faster. I think he finished, it's only 12 minutes. I think he finished it like five minutes. I'll tell you today, it's the highest IQ of any player I have ever tested. It just, you could see it. And I claim that that Super Bowl team of Hendricks and Ray May on the outside and Curtis in the middle might have been the best linebacking group I've ever seen or among the best. Wow. Wow, that is that is awesome. Michael, you have to be willing to take a chance. You have to have a conviction. You have to be willing to fight for whether it's the head coach or the other coaches to fight for what you think is the right thing. And if you don't have those qualities, now today it's even more changed now. I mean, everybody has their mock draft and I'm going like, please spare me. If you don't have those qualities, even if the game has changed so much now, you're not going to make it. After the Colts won the Super Bowl, the Patriots hired you as, as general manager, the youngest general manager in history at that point, as you mentioned. And um, what, what's the transition as far as the, the draft goes when, when you're in the general manager role versus director of player personnel? Here's how you transition. You hire Bucko Kilroy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how you do it. I mean, and and... I was very, very well of the draft. I knew all the players and everything else like that. But I did what I wanted to be. I treated Bucko the way I wanted to be treated. I said, Bucko, you're in charge. I want the Dallas system combined with the Baltimore system. You're in charge. I'm not here to second guess you. Do your job and you won't hear from me. And he did his job with some of the great drafts in history. I also was in the middle of Almost from the very first week I came here, I did make the mistake of the young general manager or young person. If I had looked at it, I never should have come. That didn't mean I wasn't happy here and I still am. It's great. But I went against my own principle in scouting. Don't ever draft a player or go into a situation that you're uneasy about. And here they had four or five owners all squabbling with each other, and the main owner, Billy Sullivan, and I never got along. So I was able to bring in really good people, and all of them went on to be head people in the NFL. But in the end, it's the old line. If you're not an owner, you're a renter. So I learned a great lesson about that. But I also applied the lesson that I learned from Shula, which is, Bring the person in, and you'll let them do the job. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. Please visit thegamebeforethemoney.com. Special thanks, as always, to Upton Bell. Remember, you can view the Upton Bell collection at UMass and online by entering the search terms Upton Bell Collection into your favorite internet search engine. And for the record, just as Upton noted, Preston Pearson was the first player to play in four Super Bowls for three teams. The Colts in Super Bowl three, Steelers in Super Bowl nine, 
and the Cowboys in Super Bowls 10, 12, and even Super Bowl 13. That's five of the first 13 Super Bowls. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. Find more great football history articles at thegamebeforethemoney.com. Transcripts of some episodes of this podcast are also available at thegamebeforethemoney.com and are powered by our transcription partner, Sonics, S-O-N-I-X. Visit sonics.ai to learn more about their automated transcription services. Thank you.